to do a quick test. Adriana. Hello. I'm here. Quinn. I am here as well. Great. Okay. Uh, okay, so Quinn, you are a little bit louder than me and Adriana, so okay. you can back it up, back Quinn. up a tiny bit. Yeah, see, I can hear myself. <laughs> I told I told I Jenny I good. thought I sounded like a gay helium balloon whenever I listened to myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's recorded, so yeah. that's going into an intro. Welcome to All About That Bass. We are happy to have in this episode Adriana San Roman. Doctor. Dr. Adriana San Roman, thank you, a postdoctoral <laughs> scholar. Is that what you, is that fellow. You, fellow. F- postdoctoral fellow at the Whitehead Institute. Adriana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. All right. So we wanted to start by having you talk a little bit just about yourself and your career track where you grew up. Yeah. Bring us up to speed. Okay. I grew up on Long Island uh, in New York, and I ended up becoming really interested in science from a young age. I would always, you know, run outside in the backyard and be smashing up plants and things, see what was inside of them. Just always very curious and knew that I would do something in science when I grew up. So I ended up going to Williams College with no you, way. Quinn. <laughs> it's so weird how we have so many guests who went to William College. I know. It's, it's strange. I don't know mm, how it happened. I don't know. How did we miss each other when we were yeah. in college? <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence. Okay. No, for our listeners, we actually knew each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I went to Williams and started doing research there at Williams and kind of fell in love with it and really just really liked being able to follow my curiosity and learn kind of the secrets of the world, I guess, the world, the natural world around us. And a little bit more specifically, what general topic were you studying in college? So in college, I was working uh, in the lab of Amy Gehring, studying bacteria called Streptomyces coelicolor. This is actually a really fun bacteria to study because it, it lives in the dirt and actually smells like dirt. So if you've ever worked with E. coli, it doesn't smell great. But this one, you open the incubator and it's like you're outside gardening. <laughs> is that really why nice. dirt smells like dirt? <laughs> I don't know if it's why dirt smells like okay. dirt, but maybe it's it's one of the reasons. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I was studying a developmental mutant of this bacteria. This bacteria has has a lifestyle kind of like a fungus in which it actually sporulates. And so we were looking at a at a mutant that that is defective in this sporulation. So it's actually called a bald mutant because it doesn't end up looking fuzzy, which is what what you get during sporulation. So so it's this bald mutant and it ended up being a mutation in a component of the transcriptional machinery. So I've kind of been studying questions related to transcription, I guess, since then, which has been really cool. So anyway, after Williams, I during Williams, I had taken developmental biology and got really interested in developmental biology and just as well as genetics. And so for graduate school, I knew I wanted to do something that kind of melds those things together. And I ended up going to uh, Harvard to the biological and biomedical research track and I uh, ended up doing my PhD in the lab of Ramesh Shiv Dasani at Dana-Farber, where we were studying um, the transcriptional regulation of intestinal stem cells. These are really important cells that are involved in the constant regeneration of the lining of the intestine. And they have a really big job to do. 
the lining of the intestine is completely regenerated about every week. And so you can imagine that's billions of cells that are getting regenerated um, every week in our bodies. And one of the kind of nice statistics that I like is that if you completely spread out your gut, uh, the the lining of your gut actually will cover an entire tennis court. So that's the amount of cells that your body is regenerating in the gut every week. So we were trying to study the mechanisms that kind of tell the intestinal stem cells when to proliferate and make more stem cells or, or differentiate into all the different cell types you need to absorb nutrients in the gut. And so all that work was using mouse models to try and look at the influence of different transcription factors that are controlling this differentiation process from the intestinal stem cells to the rest of uh, those differentiated cell types. And I knew that I was really interested in, in trying to learn more about human genetics. And so for my postdoc, I was kind of looking around at labs that could bring together my interest in developmental biology with a more human genetics focus, which is how I ended up in the lab of David Page at the Whitehead Institute, where I was really fortunate to arrive when we were just starting to think about how differences in our genomes between males and females can actually contribute to you know, many differences in health and disease that we can see throughout the population. And I think that these are really interesting questions because clearly there's a lot of developmental differences that happen between, you know, females who typically have two X chromosomes compared to males who typically have an X and a Y. Yeah, so let's start to lay the groundwork, I think, for some definitions for the rest of the episode. So can you explain to us what the difference is between sex and gender? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm what I mostly focus on in the lab is sex, which is kind of a biological characterization that relies on looking at sex chromosomes, looking at the genes that you have, looking at what hormones you have, which are going to either kind of feminize or masculinize the body, as well as looking at anatomy. Um, so what parts do you have? And, and that's in contrast to gender, which we think about more as kind of a social construct. And this is something that can actually vary between different societies and actually over time what we would consider kind of typical behavior for a male or a female. And also recognizing that, you know, there are also people out there that actually don't identify with either gender. And so a lot of times in science, we are thinking in this binary. um, But I want to recognize that for for both sex and gender, which is something I think we'll get into, that they're, they're actually is more of a spectrum than a binary. All right, so if I understand correctly, sex is more of a genetic, hormonal, anatomic definition, whereas gender is a bit more of a uh, cultural construct or definition Mm -hmm. or or what someone identifies as. Right, and may describe kind of typical behaviors that we might engage in. Got it. Mm -hmm. I think most people are familiar with the idea of there being a spectrum within the gender social Mm -hmm. construct, but maybe less people are are familiar with some of the spectrums that can exist in sex from a more genetic perspective. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, before I said that uh, females, for example, typically have XX chromosomes and males typically have XY chromosomes. Well, we know that those definitions are not always the case. And something that 
I actually work on in my research are individuals with what we call sex chromosome aneuploidies. And these are individuals who have different numbers of X and Y chromosomes. For example, there are women out there who have only one X chromosome in a portion of their cells, and that karyotype is associated with Turner syndrome. Conversely, men who have an additional X chromosome, so they have two X's and a Y, have uh, what's called Klinefelter syndrome, and, and there's all different combinations. You know, we have individuals in, in our study who have, you know, four X chromosomes and a Y, and then there can be all, all different combinations within that. And how does that change their phenotype? How does this change in sex chromosome number alter maybe um, the anatomic presentation mm-hmm. of sex or hormonal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are kind of typical phenotypes that we see. For example, with Turner syndrome, which is which is one of the ones that can have like a pretty severe presentation, so we would actually identify a lot of these people. That's generally associated with short statures, one of the most common phenotypes. There's a lot of congenital heart defects uh, that are associated as well, and infertility is very common as well. With Klinefelter syndrome, actually, both men with an extra X and an extra Y and women with an extra X tend to be a little bit taller than their counterparts with, with only two X or two or an X and a Y chromosome. And, you know, once you get into into these karyotypes where you have up to five sex chromosomes, you start to see, again, more severe phenotypes as you get further away from this, um, the two X or an X and a Y. I just want to clarify, because you still refer to people with these different sex karyotypes as men or women. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does sound like maybe from an outside listener that having a Y defines you to be a man or having no Y defines you to be a woman. Right. And I'm curious how much that's actually true when we look at people with Klinefelter's or Turner syndrome and also what the spectrum in between might look like. Yeah. Right. So so you're exactly right that generally we think that if you have a Y, you will kind of develop as a male anatomically. You will have, you know, male, a male sex hormone profile. And is that because there's one thing on the Y that's important or because you need all the genes on the Y? Right. So we generally think about this one gene SRY, which is the male determining gene that is on the Y chromosome. And this is the gene that is expressed during fetal development that is really going to drive um, this bipotential gonad, which is, which is what you have during development prior to any sexual differentiation. So that bipotential gonad can either turn into an ovary or a testis. And if SRY gets expressed, it will turn on this cascade of signaling events that will end up driving it towards this fate of becoming a testis. The testis will then produce testosterone and masculinize um, the body. We do think that other genes on the Y chromosome are important, but for, for the purposes of just our sex differentiation conversation, I think SRY is really the one that we focus on. So is SRY, the re- like getting at Jenny's question... Is that the reason why, despite having multiple copies or missing copies of different sex chromosomes, that you can still generally place these people into buckets of male and female? Right, right, exactly. So it is the action of SRY that will masculinize them. And actually, so so this discussion of aneuploidy is really to say that 
that all females are not XX and all males are not XY. There's kind of the second layer, which is this SRY gene. So you can actually end up having XY or individuals with a Y chromosome in general who can have a mutation in SRY such that it's not going to activate that male determining pathway. So you can end up having XY individuals who develop as females. You can also have a situation where that little tip of the Y chromosome where SRY lives can get translocated onto an X chromosome. So you can also have individuals that look XX, but actually they have SRY, and so they develop looking like males. So depending on if you have SRY activity or not, that can also kind of change your physical presentation. So this is kind of all to say that your sex chromosomes don't always match the outside phenotype that you have. So if you met these people walking in, on the street, if you mm-hmm. would you know? Uh, you probably wouldn't know. Yeah. yeah, they've probably been raised as, you know, the gender that they, well, so the sex that they were assigned at birth. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you probably wouldn't know. Would they know? They might not even know. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I just want to keep pushing on this question of whether or not this sex binary exists, mm. um, because I think as we've left off in the conversation, it sounds like, okay, we can't define it by sex chromosome, but we can define it by whether or not your SRY was turned on in fetal development. Mm-hmm. And is is that like sort of as simple as as it goes, or are there more complications to that? Right. So then there's, you know, the next layer, which is hormones, right? So we know that if you develop testis, um, a testis, then you're going to make male hormones. You're going to make testosterone generally. There could be disruptions in that pathway. So maybe you're not making testosterone, even though you should be because you're developing testis, a testis. You can also have a situation where even though you're making testosterone, maybe your body can't see it. And so there's individuals with androgen insensitivity syndrome who have a mutation in the receptor that can actually see androgens on the cell and so, or in the environment. And so they actually just can't respond to that masculinizing effect of testosterone. And these are the people that are like anecdotally described as your supermodels. Like they are women who are taller and like thin Mm-hmm. Right? Am I? I'm thinking of this. I have. Heard that. I, I don't yeah. know. I, I haven't have heard that. Really? <laughs> no. Yeah. That was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because they ha- they're very tall and they have broad shoulders, but then they they never go through the masculinization or the people. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember exactly the details of the. Yeah. Pathways. I think. Um, and otherwise, they're to- they have female external anatomy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Generally, um, because the body can actually convert all that testosterone into estrogen. So Mm. they can still see estrogen. And so the estrogen that's converted from that testosterone will have a feminizing effect. I see. Um, However, I will say that, especially with something like androgen insensitivity syndrome, sometimes you can have a mutation in that androgen receptor that only partially reduces the um, response to testosterone. And so I think... This is um, one of the best examples of a situation where you can get development that's really hard to actually characterize, you know, if you're looking at the anatomy, if someone is male or female. So this is kind of this category of ambiguous genitalia at birth where 
um, just by looking at someone's anatomy, you couldn't necessarily classify them into one of these two bins. Um, and so you can have ambiguous genitalia for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think traditionally it's been kind of up to the doctor or the parents at birth to really make the decision about, you know, are we going to raise this individual as a female or a male? There's been all sorts of stories about people really making these decisions and, and people kind of later on, these, these individuals finding out that this decision was made for them and kind of being upset that, that they didn't have a say in this decision. Yeah. So I think now common medical practice is to either wait and just raise them in gender kind of neutral. a gender neutral way and see how they develop but generally not to make big decisions such as surgeries and things, um, which generally it's easier to remove parts than add parts. So generally, if you were ambiguous, you'd be, they would do surgery to make you look more female and then you'd be raised as a female. Yeah, I can kind of confirm that idea. So I did my pediatrics rotation in medical school and I sat in on one of the medical genetics case discussion series, mm -hmm. and they were talking about a baby that was born with ambiguous genitalia. And uh, as an aside, um, they did some karyotyping of the baby, and they noticed that certain metaphase spreads would have an XY, and certain ones had just an X. Or maybe it was XXY for some, and then XX for some of the spreads. Mm -hmm. So anyway, there was some mosaicism. But what was interesting was that the parents, like if you think about it, when a baby is born, even when before the baby is born, one of the first questions, like what is one of the first questions these women get asked? What are you having? Exactly. <laughs> Everyone wants to know the gender of the baby. Yeah, you want to you want to cut open the cake and have blue or pink inside. Exactly. <laughs> gender reveal. Yeah. No one who got like does someone get like a blue and pink? Like what is what do you? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah, but complicated. but that's essentially what happened. This yeah. baby was a blue and pink baby, but our all a lot of our society is constructed around gender, and so the parents really want to know. Okay, well the baby has ambiguous genitalia what is it? Can you tell us? We want to know now. Mm -hmm. And the doctors actually said that currently the the best practices is to, given that in the past these kids were determined to be one gender or another and then raised that way, and they actually ran into a lot of issues. So what they now do is, yeah, raise the kid, uh, try to convince the parents to raise the kid in a gender neutral way and let the kid self-determine as they get older. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's just difficult because the parents want to know, yep. especially if they're coming from certain cultures, they want to know what the gender of the baby is. Yeah. Yes. I think that's a good segue into our next topic of discussion, which is sort of our society's obsession with classifying sex and gender. Um, and especially in the realm of athletics, this is extremely important. Basically, all sports are divided into male teams and female teams from an early, early age, right? Like, yeah, I feel like t-ball maybe when you're yeah. playing <laughs> yeah. is, is both, but yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to talk about, you know, how much are divisions of sex and uses of different tests to divide sex in athletics was scientifically merited or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think 
you know, separating out athletics by sex is something that's been done for a long time. And I think the real rationale for this is because if you look really across athletics, there there is a difference in performance between, you know, people who have been classified as males and people who have been classified as females. You know, if you look at something like track, which has been in the news a lot lately, for many, you know, track events, men will have times that are sometimes 10 to 15 percent higher than women. And so I think or the men are faster. Yeah. So, yeah the times are, oh, the times are lower. Yeah, right. Yeah. They're faster. <laughs> Maybe they jump higher. <laughs> they yeah. might jump higher or throw farther. But yeah, um, yeah so they'll be faster yeah. than women by about 10 to 15 percent. And so I think kind of to to make it so that women could compete in athletics and be able to have success, these these two groups were really broken up. But I think the the places where this gets confusing are are these ambiguous cases, not necessarily ambiguous. I would like to rephrase that. Um, are these are these cases where we're challenging this idea of there being two buckets of people? These cases that indicate that sex and gender are more of a spectrum, and so in that regard, there there's been a lot in the news recently especially regarding two female track athletes, Duty Chand and Castor Semenya, who have been kind of pushing back on the regulations that are policing who gets to be considered a female and a male. And these are athletics. Olympic athletes. These are right? Olympic athletes. These are these are, you know, at the top of their game. And They're, can you take us back yeah. to the at the Olympics, what were they doing in order to... Were they ever trying to verify people's sex or gender? Yeah. So I think a lot of this started during the Cold War, actually, when there were many Russian female athletes who had kind of a manly appearance, and people thought that they were actually men masquerading as women to try and win these events. And so because of that, there became kind of this practice in high-level athletics where if someone thought you were actually a man competing as a woman, you could be um, kind of flagged and, and tested. This became so prevalent that actually in the 60s, women had to parade nude in front of a committee to have a genital examination to actually prove that they were women and get a gender verification card that said, yes, you are a female. You can compete in these female events. And that was required for everyone. This sounds very degrading. It's horrifying. Yes. Yeah. I'm assuming it was men that were on the committee. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And mm. you mentioned the that this was during this started during the time in the Cold War as a way to flag Russian athletes. Yeah. And I assume that's not a coincidence that you mention Cold War and Russia mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. So there's some political calculus right. involved too. Right. And yeah, I mean I think that this has been done that was done at that time with some probably political agenda. And I think since then the agenda has kind of shifted to actually mostly discriminating against um, women of color who maybe uh, don't always fit the sort of 
stereotypical female gender norms of um, essentially white European. Yeah. Um, so back to Duti Chan and Castor Semenya, how did they come to attention on the world stage? Mm-hmm. Um, right. So these women were crushing it. <laughs> um, so I followed Duty Chan's story for a while. And I just, I can't help but, but put myself in her shoes and what she must have felt like. Because when she was 18 years old, she had just won gold in a couple events at the Asian Junior Athletics Championships. And it was at that time when she was so dominant in this sport and was just about to transition to her first, you know, out of this junior athletics competitions into really like these professional track competitions that that she was flagged as potentially being as being not a female, essentially. Um, And this is based just on how she on how she looked and and because she was so dominant in the sport. Okay. I like um, that. You're so good at running. You must be a man. Yeah. There's no, <laughs> there's no way you right. could be a woman. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so she ended up getting brought in for testing without being told why, without being told what these tests were for. She was, we don't exactly know what the tests were. And she's 18. She's 18 years old. She's been raised as a female. She identifies as a female. You know, it's, it's as yeah. if, you know, you know, I'm on I'm on my high school track team and suddenly someone's like, hey, I don't think you're a woman. Like, how horrifying would yeah. that be to go it be through? So confusing. Yeah. It would be so confusing. And yeah, it's just horrible. Or just the, going through the tests with I'm assuming these tests were not like. Right. I uh, I mean, we don't we don't know exactly what was done. Likely ultrasounds, maybe blood tests. Um, I mean, genital exam. Yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, word got out that she was undergoing gender verification tests and that she had failed them. Wow. Um, Yeah. And so she ended up being banned from competing uh, after after her test results came back as as failing this this test. Do we know what were the specifics of why they thought she had, quote, failed? Right. So we know that she ended up having testosterone levels that were, quote, too high outside of the normal range for a female. And I think at at this time, you know, after this gender verification stuff happened at the Olympics, people kind of transitioned to chromosome tests. And because of reasons that we've discussed, we know chromosomes don't always tell you what somebody's sex actually is. So then they transitioned into using hormones as as the metric. And so she ended up having high testosterone levels. And so they said, you can't you can't compete unless you reduce your testosterone levels. And what are the reasons why she this is complete speculation. We don't know her medical record, but like what are sort of the categories of reasons that you might think of for why she would have elevated Mm -hmm. testosterone levels or why a woman would have elevated testosterone levels? Yeah. So, yeah. So so the. Kind of the governing body has a few categories of women that they actually have decided to ban for having high testosterone levels. So, for example, if you are someone who is XY, so you develop testes and you make testosterone, but you can't see that testosterone because you have androgen insensitivity syndrome, you are allowed to participate under these rules because your body can't respond to it. 
But if your body can respond to it, which we assume since she was banned that hers probably can, that was too much. So it's it it's possible that she we don't really know her exact you know karyotype or anything, right. mm-hmm. but it, but it could. But be. I guess I'm just I'm wondering biologically or genetically, mm-hmm. what are the reasons why a woman might have elevated testosterone? Is it just simply variation across the population, or are there known genetics um, that contribute? Yeah, I think a lot of it can come down to the these you know disorders of sexual development where where you might be XY and making testosterone from some sort of either testes or kind of ambiguous gonads that are kind of in between is one of the things that that I think is specifically regulated in this. Um, but you don't make enough to form male external genitalia so you can be born Mm -hmm. right externally looking female or maybe in between but yeah yeah, you've been kind of classified as and raised as a female and i'm also curious at how we define these quote-unquote normal levels of Mm -hmm. testosterone across women and what populations we test um, Mm -hmm. what ethnic populations we use to define those etc that's a really good question i'm not i'm definitely not an expert on on how those classifications were made if there's different classifications for individuals from you know different ethnic backgrounds i'm not sure but it might be safe yeah. to assume that it was know. like white women it, and, I, yeah i just don't know or that it was a subcategory of people who were tested for testosterone levels because they had something else going on like i'm not sure of any studies where they routinely tested women's testosterone level. levels yeah Sorry. Or maybe infertility, maybe they mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I'm not sure how those okay. were defined. Anyway, yeah. sorry. So, so <laughs> to go okay. back, um, so she was banned. Mm-hmm. Yep, so she was banned and ended up bringing a lawsuit appealing this decision. And at the time, actually, the court ruled in her favor and said that this policy of banning her and asking her to reduce her testosterone level was not justified based on current scientific knowledge of whether or not having higher levels of testosterone actually makes you, you know, so much better than other women that it would be unfair that you should be able to compete against them. Can you elaborate on that? So what is the current understanding of the extent to which elevated testosterone is correlated with performance? Yeah. Well, so so that's actually what they went to try and test. I mean, certainly taking exogenous testosterone steroids, so taking synthetic testosterones can boost performance in athletics. And we've seen many athletes get banned for doing this, right? That is an unfair advantage. That is something they are doing to cheat. This is different. This is something her body is naturally doing. This is not anything she has done to cheat, right? This is this is just her biology. And so in cases where this there's an elevated level that is not due to that is due to endogenous testosterone that's being made in your body. There was very little known about how much advantage that would give you. And so the court in this appeal said, okay, we're going to take two years. And in these two years, we want you know, science to be done to try and actually address this question. And so for those two years, Judy Chand was able to compete as a woman in races. She was able to actually go to the Rio Olympics in 2016, and and so during this time, the there was a, a group actually that was not independent of these 
athletics committees that that tried to do this analysis. And so what they did was they took data from some track um, events and where they had the the times from the races as well as testosterone levels from many individuals. And so they asked whether individuals with higher testosterone had an advantage in these events. And so what they ended up finding in these studies was that in certain events, they were able to see an advantage of having higher testosterone levels. These were running events between 400 meters and the one mile, as well as for some of the non-running track events like shot put and yeah, I don't remember all the others. But it was something for like five out of the 11 events that they looked at there, they saw an advantage. However, the advantage was small, right? Uh So it was only a couple percentage points above other women. And for the majority of the events they looked at, for six out of the 11, they actually saw that those women with more testosterone did not have an advantage. So Uh it's definitely not consistent across like all athletic events for sure um it's also i just can't help but think like if we replace testosterone with height yeah and we said well being taller makes you better at basketball and you're weirdly tall so you can't play Mm -hmm. you know it would just sound ridiculous right right for some reason testosterone has this effect right well i think it's because women or like females are a protected class of athletes in that the assumption is that if you are not a woman that you are you have an advantage because men are like you said 10 to 15 percent faster but yeah there's all of these other qualities to someone that could give them an advantage that are genetically determined that you have no control over we talk about michael phelps who is built essentially to swim and there's all of these if you google his name there's all these people who like thinks he has marfan syndrome because he's tall and it's has not big true ears. no he he's doesn't been have tested <laughs> yeah but he common has, myth <laughs> yeah or like um like there are i mean all of these world-class athletes have some they're at the end of some kind of spectrum like they're anomalies in right. multiple mm-hmm. ways like janet evans was this very dominant distance swimmer i forget in what era but she set all these world records that were only broken, like, they were over decades later. Um, And she, like, I remember reading that she could process oxygen much, much more efficiently than a normal person. And, but, right, in this case, testosterone levels are this, like, totally different game. Yeah, I guess what you're saying, Quinn, is because we have these two buckets of male teams and female teams, that it's easier to say, well, you can't compete in our in our races, go compete in that other race. Yeah, and so just to go back to that study real quick, so they only found a small difference in these women with elevated testosterone. It did not bring them up to what we see in terms of times for the elite male athletes, right? It's a couple percentage points. So, you know, it's also a question of like, what advantage do you classify as like too much of an advantage? Right, and Duty Chand at this point was winning junior, like, yeah, competitions. So, right. She wasn't winning gold medals. Right. At so she went to the, the Rio Olympics. Olympics, and she ended up not making it out of the heats. So she didn't even actually compete in like the the final, you know, races. And yeah, so so there there's they've used this ruling actually to 
say that women, we found evidence that in these certain events, women who have elevated testosterone have an advantage. So we're not going to let them compete in those races. So from the 400 meters to one mile, there's been a lot of criticism about this study. One of the biggest criticisms is that it was done by people kind of within this organization and has not really gone through a rigorous external peer review. There has not been independent verification of this data. They have not shared their raw data with anyone. Probably due to, I mean, it's probably due to privacy concerns mostly because you can't, you don't want to publish the the data of everybody's testosterone level because we can go look up their times by their name and then we could identify everybody, right? So you don't want to publish that raw data, but it is kind of problematic that other groups have have not been able to take a look at this and verify their results. And another group published a paper actually just just using their kind of summary data and a little bit of raw data that they were able to be provided and did find some discrepancies in their data. And so it's unclear how much we should even believe this one study, and I think it is problematic that it's sort of an internal within the organization study mm-hmm. that led to this um, this result, which ended up banning Castor Semenya from participating in competition because she is one of those women that's in that 400 meter to one mile. You know, those are her events, and she has elevated testosterone. And she's been in the news a lot lately. She recently just lost her appeal against that rule. And the organization said, we realize this is discriminatory, <laughs> essentially. But, you know, there's there's really, this is our decision. And either you have to have surgery to remove any tissue that's giving you this extra testosterone or you have to take medicine that's going to decrease your testosterone level or you can go compete with men (laughs) those are her options (laughs) it's awful and these women they have to be you call them you call it flagged first to be Mm -hmm. tested or do all women undergo this testing now you have to be flagged. Okay. So someone has to accuse you. I see. This seems very problematic. Which is horrible. Yeah. And it's, I mean, these two women, Duty Chand, as well as Castor Semenya, they're both women of color. I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And they also, I like, if Castor Semenya or Duty Chand looked stereotypically like a woman, Mm-hmm. If they weren't like m- like they they are muscular like they're athletes mm-hmm. and I think in Caster Semenya's case like her facial features look more masculine but you can't help but think that if she just looked different that mm-hmm. she never would mm-hmm. have been flagged and she would be a celebrated Olympic athlete mm-hmm. right yeah we don't know how many women have elevated testosterone levels that aren't getting flagged yeah exactly. that aren't getting tested yeah yeah so we don't we don't really know how frequent this this is and yeah it's only if someone challenges you because you're successful and because you don't look like what you know they have in their mind as a stereotypical female Mm -hmm. then then they're gonna you know go after you Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's not right Mm -hmm. so we have these gender-defined buckets for competition so what do you do with these people who maybe are exceptions like it sounds like actually in the case of duty chand and caster semenya that they might not be so exceptional we've talked about a lot of yeah uh, problematic things about the way that they have been barred from competition but 
yeah, do you do you design athletic competition to take into account the far less than 1% of people who don't fit cleanly into male or female buckets? Or do you just say, you know, unfortunately, because we need to have these categories, there's going to be a few people who will be barred from competition? I think it's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that again as as we've mentioned before clearly this difference in testosterone is just one factor out of many 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 factors that can influence your success in athletics right you know we talked about the example of height potentially in basketball right we know that there is a a difference in height between you know the average female and the average male men tend to be taller so if you had a group of the tallest women versus the tallest men, the men would be taller and they'd probably do better at basketball. But those men have been in elite training programs to get as good. You could have a group of really tall men who, you know, haven't been, you know, put in these elite training programs their whole lives and clearly they're not going to do as well. So height alone and, you know, a physical trait alone doesn't mean that you are definitely going to be better at something mm-hmm. than someone who maybe has had many opportunities in their lives in terms of, you know, money, support, yeah. good nutrition in their life. Mm-hmm. Or other physical characteristics. You know, other then. physical characteristics, yeah. um, you know, other genetic variations mm-hmm. that make their muscles work a little faster. Yeah, <laughs> But so- sometimes I do wonder, I mean... F- for track, it, this is hard, but I do wonder for the team sports, if we just did allow women and men to compete, like clearly men have the advantage in height. There's no denying that. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder what innovations would come out yeah. of women trying to beat the men, given that, you know, given that they aren't going to be taller mm-hmm. than the men. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that would be interesting to consider. And I mean, yeah, I respect that for track. That's a lot different more difficult because it's kind of the singular skill of Mm -hmm. how fast you are at running which is you know like you said the men do have an advantage yeah it's like part of me wants to say why not just have people compete in the race that they (laughs) identify with but you know i understand then people worry about like you know men who identify as men quote-unquote cheating by competing in the women's races yeah i mean definitely With the regulations we have now, you have to legally be, you know, you have to declare yourself as a female to compete as a female. I find it really hard to believe that someone who does not want to be, like, who who still is identifying (laughs) as a male is going to go through all the hard work that it takes (laughs) to legally change their, you know, sex, which it's really hard to do. Uh I didn't realize you had to legally declare yourself as female to yeah. compete. There's been some articles about high school transgender mm. athletes, and yeah. usually they're probably male to female, and they're fairly dominant in the sport they're competing in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of concerns from the parents of the other, like, quote, true, like, females mm-hmm. in the race that, like, if not for this transgender woman competing, my daughter would have won. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like fear, I think. I think it's just such an interesting topic or question because it's so messy. Because like, it's like, do you, do you construct the world of athletics to 
make space for these exceptional people? Or do you just say, you know, this this category of people that's fairly small is just can't compete? And I... I don't think that's the right answer. Right. I think there's some gray zone in there, but we're not... We haven't done a good job yet, I think... No, and I to think to solve this question, but I think but it I, is but clear again, that the science gonna, I, doesn't necessarily support the decision that right. has been made today. Right. Yeah. And also, we're totally okay with honoring exceptional people who are exceptional in other, in other ways, ways yep. that are not right. related to gender. Yeah. But once it becomes really related to gender, it's seen as cheating. Right. And, so, and I, I do find that there's something really problematic there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's also just ridiculous that that these regulations include changing your body, yeah, undergoing an invasive medical procedure, yeah. or taking drugs that are not medically warranted to change something that is natural right. about the way your right. body works. Yeah. Right, a doctor would not, outside of this recommendation from the Olympic governing body, a doctor mm-hmm. would not prescribe Never. castor or duty drugs to lower their testosterone levels. No, I'm assuming that they're otherwise healthy. Yeah. I mean, I guess just to drive this point home more about how much this is a gender issue, I, I feel, than actually a athletics issue, there is a, I should have looked up her name, but there is a track runner who later found out she had a genetic mutation that makes it so that she has very low percentage body fat. Hmm. She's like very high percentage muscle. And it's not due to testosterone, it's due to a mutation in a different pathway. Mm-hmm. And you know, there clearly that gives her a huge advantage in athletics because she's has so much more muscle to fat in her body. But there's no one complaining about that or asking that she be banned. And right. so I I do see it's these, like oh isn't she lucky? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I I do see mm-hmm. the outrage around this issue to be very much a gender related issue in right. ways that I maybe can't articulate super well because I'm not a gender studies expert. Well. Tune in in 10 <laughs> years. Maybe we'll see, so hopefully, progress. Thank you, Adriana. It was a very interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Adriana, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This was really fun.